0: We'll open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please give us insight into your word. Please help us to handle your son's departure and be ready for his return. Help us to understand where the kingdom is going and what it's doing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the disciples... Confronted with the fact of the ascension, immediately had to ask themselves the question, what do we do about this? And it turns out that their instincts were not correct. Our text addresses how to handle Jesus' departure. The king is gone. He was here. He conquered the kingdom. And then he left. What do we do about that? Well, the text presents two things that we don't do. What we don't do is engage in heaven-gazing. Is that him? Is he coming back? Don't stand there staring at the sky saying, Oh, that! Is heaven opening? Is Jesus coming back? I'm... Spend my time scanning the sky, looking for the return. The angel said, don't do that. Nor do we attempt to set times and dates. So we don't sit around and stare at the sky, nor do we attempt to get out our calendars and pick a particular day and say, this is it. Some of you actually purchased, or knew people who purchased the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. And allegedly, when he didn't, that same author added another reason. In fact, he had 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 89. He just brought out a second edition. But our text insists, don't be a date setter. Don't be a heaven gazer. Instead, we handle Jesus' departure by focusing on the things that He left. His return is going to be just like His departure. That's what the angel emphasized. He will so come in like manner as you saw Him go. Therefore, what we learned from the ascension is what we need to know for the second coming. And what did we learn from the ascension? Well, we learned about power, the Spirit, an unrestricted witness. So how do you get ready for the second coming? Well, you get ready for it by not being a date setter, not being a heaven gazer, but instead being someone who's full of power, the spirit and unrestricted witness. Verse 6, they come together to say goodbye. A little bit of a going away party. Most of you have held one of these, been to one of these, been the subject of one of these This is what's going on. The disciples gathered to see Jesus off, to say farewell. And they asked him a final question. This is it. This is the moment. Some of us, some of our friends were anticipating with the inauguration this week that maybe there was a chance for the former president to do one final thing before he left office. And so it is. The disciples have realized, okay, he's leaving. But, 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 before you go, Jesus, what about Israel and the kingdom? We want to know. We've just kind of been waiting around for three years to see whether you would do anything about this, and now we want to know. We know that it's now or never, so it's going to be now, Will you bring the kingdom back to Israel? So what is that question? The question is, are we and our fellow Jewish people going to once again become a geopolitical entity on the world stage? Will we, back out of the Roman Empire, right? secede from Rome, will we then proceed to conquer the world under the leadership of Jesus the Messiah. Is that what you're going to do? I know you're leaving in the next five minutes, but we want to know whether this is going to happen. It's an obvious question. To this day, of course, there are many, many people who read the Bible this same way. That The Old Testament is primarily directed towards the establishment of the land of Israel as a geopolitical entity on the world stage. One group of those we call Zionists. There are, of course, many different flavors of Zionists, but there are some who believe and would call themselves Zionists because of what they read in the Old Testament. There are promises here to Israel in its land. And within Judaism, there's also a strong anti Zionist faction. And that anti Zionist faction says, we can't be Zionists because it is the Messiah who will restore us to the land of Israel. So that is, if you meet a Jewish person who's an anti Zionist, likely he would have a theological reason for it. That it's not the place of the Jewish people to claim the land. Rather, the Messiah will lead them into the land. Which is, of course, exactly what the apostles are asking here. We understand that the Messiah will lead us back to this geopolitical entity. Something along the lines of Solomon's kingdom. You're the Messiah. We're convinced of that. Therefore... How about it? Are you bringing us back to the land? So they asked this question. Factions in the church as well read the Old Testament like this. Uh, Many of them call themselves dispensationalists. That Again, the 39 books of the Old Testament are directed toward the establishment of Israel as a geopolitical entity. So whether on the Jewish side, the Christian side, and of course there are some people who are neither, who are Zionists and who believe, maybe for romantic reasons, for reasons of nationalist ideology, the Jewish people ought to have a homeland just like every other people ought to have a homeland. Scotland should succeed from the UK, the Basques should leave Spain, you know, bring it on. Everybody who has an ethnic identity to get their own place? Well, it's an obvious question for all kinds of reasons, whether theological, historical, nationalistic, romantic, or even just plain, I have lived my entire life under the thumb of Rome and now I've found somebody who's powerful enough to take them on And would you please do that, Lord? Because I'm ready. I'm over it. Jesus, though, doesn't answer the question directly. Now, we can criticize the question. We can spend time trying to reframe the question. Calvin writes in his commentary, there are almost as many errors as words in this question. But the best way to get into the question is to look at the answer. What did Jesus think about this question? How did he reframe the question? Well, his first his answer goes to this. Don't ask about times. And he bats away the question of geopolitics. I'm not going to answer the question of when Israel will become a geopolitical entity. Right? Acts is not some New Testament version of Joshua and 1st and 2 Samuel, where we see Israel entering the land and conquering. You could call it a little bit like Joshua, right? it lists conquered territories, places where the church was established, but it's on a totally different footing. Paul isn't going around challenging cities to surrender and then blowing up their city walls and knifing everyone inside if they won't. He approaches this very differently. This book doesn't cover that question. The question is posed at the beginning. When will Israel once again become a nation state? The question is asked. Jesus says, I'm not going to answer that question because it's not for you to know. And then the subject is dropped. Acts simply does not deal with when or whether Israel will once again become a nation state. Instead, Jesus reframes the question in terms of how we should live after his departure. I'm not going to answer your political question. I'm not going to answer your question about times and dates it is not for you to know times and dates which the father has fixed by his own authority right acts is about how we can be certain of the kingdom in the king's absence and therefore acts doesn't address our political or chronological questions What's wrong with date setting? Why is it not for us to know the times and dates the Father has fixed by His own authority? Well, the answer is, if you know the date of something, you can plan on it or not. The human race has this little habit called procrastination. Sometimes regarded as a negative thing. Sometimes in the other version, we will cross that bridge when we come to it, regarded it as a positive thing. We have the semi-quincentennial coming up. 250 years, 1776 to 2026. Most of you, I'm sure, have marked July 4th, 2026 on your calendars. You've decided what mm-hmm. the menu will be You have the guest list. You know what fireworks you want. No, you don't. None of us here is looking five years into the future. Not even five years. That's five years down the road. I will worry about celebrating USA 250 when I get there. So in the most literal way possible, if we knew the time and date of the ascension of Jesus, that would make it irrelevant to us to all but one or two generations of Christians. It's not going to be in my lifetime. If you think we're not worried about the semi-quincentennial, how much less are we worried about the tricentennial? USA 300, 2076. Most of us don't have a very good shot of being there in 2076. We're not planning on that. And similarly, if God had revealed the date of Jesus' second coming, we would say, not going to be there. Not going to happen to me. Not an event within my lifetime. The best way to make the second coming functionally irrelevant is to figure out when it is. We tend to want to put it in our own generation and therefore, oh, it's relevant to me because it's on my calendar. But even that, most of us have things coming up in the next few weeks that we need to prepare to start preparing for and, you know, we have a little bit, but we're not particularly prepared for them. We have things happening in six months that we haven't done anything about such as that July 4th party. Don't try to set a date not for us to know the time and date. And if you want confirmation of that, the history of the church is absolutely littered with the carcasses of fools who announced, I've calculated when Jesus will be back. For some reason, they always put it during their own lifetime. At a time when their contemporaries would be able to mock and jeer and say, yep, failed again. Don't set a date. That is not the path of Christian discipleship. So, what is for us? Not times and dates, including the date of the restoration of Israel. Not something we need to know. Rather, what is for us? Power, the Spirit, witness. Acts eight is well known as the programmatic outline of the book. It starts in Jerusalem, moves to Judea, then to Samaria, then to the other most parts of the earth. So it does. But the focus here is on witness on the Spirit, on power. That's how he handled Jesus' departure. Not by marking on the calendar when he'll come back and saying, we can forget about him until this day. He's not a factor until that day when he gets back. Right? We all do it. Oh, so and so is leaving. Well, we won't do anything with him. Well, we might spend a few minutes on the phone, but they're not part of our plans over the time that they're gone. That's not how we approach the departure of Jesus. The first thing He gives us is power. Because a kingdom with no power is a kingdom that will not exist very long. The power that He gives us is not power in the worldly sense, not political power, military power, not even artistic or cultural power. What kind of power is it that the disciples received? Well, it's the power that they needed to do the tasks of the church, that is, worship and witness. That's what the church is for. That's the kind of power that it got. So anybody who tells you Oh, Jesus said He would give us power. Here's some of the world's kind of power. The power of elite institutions. The power of the megaphone. The power of this political solution. Or that cultural monopoly. That's not the kind of power that they got. The kind of power that they got is best defined as Spiritual power. Power for evangelism. Power for conversion. Power for holiness. So any church that offers you power that is not primarily directed towards those things is not speaking of this power from Jesus. Can political power convert, evangelize, or sanctify Can cultural power do that? We know the answer to those questions. If political power could convert, then anytime somebody won a landslide, the rest of the country would come over to them. Oh, my guy lost. I like winners. I will join the other party. Political power doesn't convert. The spirit is the source of this power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus says, the date, the time, that's not for you. What is for you is the Spirit. He brings power. Because He is God. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. And the Spirit, of course, manifests His power in the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. If you don't have love, joy, and peace, you don't have the Spirit. If you don't show the fruits of the Spirit, you don't have the power that Jesus promised. This church, as a whole, is full of love, joy, and peace. That's good. That's a blessing from the Lord. Again, if your Christianity is more interested in speculating on times and dates than it is in the Holy Spirit, you haven't understood the book of Acts. Times and dates are not for us, Spirit is for us. Which which would you rather have? You can have God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit with you, empowering you all the time. Or you can have a calendar notification. Hmm. Man, which one do I pick? Why are we more interested in times and dates than we are in the Spirit? These things ought not so to be. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Let the Spirit dwell in you richly. Cultivate the presence of the Spirit by worship, by singing, by reading the Word of God. Is the Spirit primarily who you seek? What you pray for? What you think of as necessary in the Christian life? Or do you have the idea that if you know, you've know you drawn a timeline of world history up to the present on your wall and if the Spirit would just let you fill in the rest of that, then you could be a good Christian. Well, finally then, we get... The purpose of the power, the purpose of the Spirit, it is this unrestricted witness. You shall be witnesses to me, or my witnesses, in Jerusalem, in Judea, which is the region around Jerusalem, in Samaria, to the end of the earth. It's like saying, you'll be my witnesses in Gillette, in Campbell County, in Wyoming, and to the end of the earth. We start local, and we build... Outward And certainly Peter, Paul, and Luke would regard Gillette as the end of the earth. Most of us do. Where they preached is important, but that's not the most important thing because the message is for everywhere. It started in Jerusalem, yes. It goes out in an unrestricted way. The witness is to be witnessed everywhere. Right? Power is for every kingdom citizen. The Spirit is for every kingdom citizen. And therefore, witness is for every kingdom citizen too. Power, the Spirit, witness. Now, most of us hear that and say, You don't get it. I don't have the gift of evangelism, I've never led anyone to the Lord. My chance of leading anyone to the Lord at this point in my life is pretty low. You're telling me power is for every Christian. Spirit is for every Christian. Witness is for every Christian. I think I, start need, to feeling, I need to start feeling really guilty and then keep living the same way I've lived. Right, but Jesus didn't say, you will be my evangelist doesn't say you will testify to me. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, but witnessing does not mean sharing your faith. As we know immediately in any other context, did you witness that car wreck? Or in the parental context, did you see your sister take this thing that your brother alleges that she took from him? Did you witness it? What is a witness? A witness is just somebody with first-hand knowledge. And that, my friends, is every Christian. If you have power, if you have the Spirit, then you also have first-hand knowledge that Jesus is who He said He is, And that he actually is doing what he said he would do. That is to save people and build his church. And by that means save the world. In other words, to be a witness is the same as saying I didn't read it in a book somewhere. I didn't hear it from a friend. I didn't just pick it up in the course of my daily life. No. This is not secondhand information. This is first-hand information. You will be my witnesses everywhere you go. Now, do witnesses always testify? The answer is no, of course not. Not every witness is called on to testify. If you're subpoenaed, then you have to testify. But many witnesses are ignored silenced, never given a chance to testify. They might even be summoned to court and then not called on during the course of the trial. Just sitting there waiting, I could testify. I have firsthand knowledge of the events that are on trial today. The point is not the testimony. It doesn't say you will testify to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. You'll be my witnesses. Right. Do we need to, in other words, spend our Christian life mostly feeling guilty about our lack of evangelism? Or is the call here to focus on gaining first-hand knowledge of Jesus? Right. What empowers testifying? Well, witnessing. I saw it. I have first-hand knowledge. And so when somebody asks, when I'm called upon to, to testify, when that moment of testimony comes, I can say, here's what I know. This has happened to me. I can share my testimony because I'm simply describing where I'm at. Right? I used to be very angry and full of rage. And now... I have peace in my heart. And things that used to enrage me don't enrage me. That's because the Holy Spirit came from Jesus and changed me. That's a testimony. That's what I've witnessed. So, how do you experience Jesus' reality? How do you witness who He is? You witness growth in love and joy and peace and the freedom from guilt that comes from knowing Jesus and having Him in your heart. If you have those fruits of the Spirit, if you have a knowledge that God no longer holds your sin against you, you are a witness to the power of Jesus. Whether you ever talk about it or not. If you're involved as a witness in a traffic stop and the cops ask you what happened afterwards and you tell them, you don't walk away and say, I just witnessed to those cops. You did testify. You witnessed something and then you told them about it. But Jesus doesn't say you will be my evangelist. You're something better than an evangelist. You are a witness. At this moment, there are hundreds of millions of people all over the earth with first-hand knowledge of Jesus and his work. That's a big deal. Your spirit-empowered witnesses. That's much better than being a citizen of an Israel restored to Solomonic glory. Yes, blessed were those who got to stand in his court and hear the wisdom of Solomon. How no much more blessed are those who get to be in the courts of Jesus, our heavenly king, and hear his wisdom and see his power at work. So that's what the application is. What do we do about Jesus leaving? Well, we have power, the spirit, and unrestricted witness. And we exercise those. We have power. We exercise power. We have the Spirit. And we walk by the Spirit. And we witness, that is, we see Jesus at work in our lives every day. So Jesus went up, verse 9, and the cloud took him going on the clouds, coming on the clouds. Daniel saw the Son of Man coming on the clouds back in Daniel 7. Clouds are associated with the presence of God all through the Bible. The cloud on Mount Sinai. The Lord riding on a cloud in Psalm 18. The Son of Man coming on a cloud in Daniel 7. And here he goes up and the cloud whisks him away. He ascends up into heaven. And uh, we can imagine, as one commentator pointed out, that Peter and John, who had already been present at the transfiguration, were like, no big deal, guys. Just wait a second. He'll be back. We've seen this before. We saw him taken up in the glory cloud, and then he, he was back. So they're standing there watching. When is he coming back? When is he coming back? And suddenly, two men are standing there. We all know this bad feeling of I'm focused on something else, and somebody gets up close to me, I don't notice it. And then they touch you or they start to speak, and you jump. Oh. Well, these two men just appeared. Two men were standing there suddenly and said, Quit heaven gazing. Stop it. He will come back the way that he went. Which you would think, oh, yeah, he'll come back the way he went, so I should stand here and wait for him to do that. No, the way that he went was by saying, you have power, you have the Spirit, you are witnesses. And he'll come back in that same way. He'll come back wanting you to walk in the power of the Spirit and witness what he's doing. We don't look for Jesus by examining every cloud that floats by. His return is not about the time and date, nor about heaven gazing. His return is about our activity on earth, walking in the power of the Spirit as witnesses of what God has done for us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text Thank you for what your son told us that we have power from the Spirit and that we are firsthand witnesses of the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to live like that. We pray that you would call on us to testify and that we would have the opportunity to share what we know firsthand. Father, help us to understand that witnesses are often not called, often not wanted, that their testimony is often silenced, as we will see over and over through the book of Acts. Father, though, witnesses can be silenced, they can't unsee what they've seen. We pray that you would give us the confidence in the reality of your kingdom that we have as first-hand witnesses of what Jesus is doing as he saves the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.